is great to be in God's house this morning. Thank you for setting your clocks correctly and getting here on time. Uh, I was looking at the clock. I'm like, in about 15 minutes, we're going to have some folks walk in here. Like, you know, in 10 minutes, they're going to be like, I'm five minutes early. Look at all confused when they walk in to all of us already having church. Um, this past week, uh, my family and I, Drea, me and the kids, had the, uh, the blessing and the privilege uh, to join alongside a number of students from Azusa Pacific University where I, I work as uh, one of the campus pastors and the dean of spiritual life. Um, and we went down to Ensenada, uh, Mexico, to a region called the uh, Maniadero uh, town which is about 20 minutes south of Ensenada. This is uh, my second time going with the group from APU, and, but it's our first time going together as a family. And uh, we just had such a wonderful time. And I know I went on behalf of APU, but obviously wherever we go, we represent Mission Ebenezer Family Church. Um, and we had the joy of uh, having a chance to participate in a number of wonderful ministries. You'll see a few pictures here that we're showing. Of uh, There's Ruthie and Micaiah putting some blue paint um, up on some siding that we'll use for the house. Joseph helped out with the framing of one of the walls there. And uh, we just had a great time over the past week. By God's grace, these college students, there were 60 of them who gave up their spring break. They didn't have to go, but they decided to, uh, to pay uh, about $350 each student, and that included their the place to stay, food to eat, as well as the construction materials cost to build two houses for two families in this, uh, this region of Mexico. And uh, it, it was just a, a delight to be part of this ministry. We partnered with an organization that is based out of Ensenada called Baja Bound, and this organization uh, serves particularly uh, migrant workers in this region. Many who come to work in Ensenada aren't from Ensenada. They're from Oaxaca uh, or different parts, Chiapas, different parts of southern Mexico or even Guatemala and uh, Central America. And they come up to work in the fields of Ensenada. And many come without homes. They come just to work. And uh, they and their entire families are often... Um, uh, gathering together under kind of makeshift structures that obviously can't stand, especially during the storms that we've been facing. Uh, so the families that we had a chance to serve, uh, all of their belongings were laid out because of the storm that just came in. Um, but thank the Lord, after Friday, at least two of those families now have a roof over their head. And it was such an honor to be part of that process. Um, one of the families, they had a boy who was about the same age as my son Joseph, and so they had a good time playing together, playing soccer and all these different games in the fields there, and uh, his name was Caleb, and so uh, I shared with them the story, the biblical story of where his name came from, which was the first time he heard that story, and, uh, and I utilized that as an illustration to him and his father, Francisco, and told him, no matter what giants are in the land, uh, no giant is bigger than God. Uh, no problem is bigger than God. So we, we just had a wonderful time. Um, the other ministries that we had a chance to participate in, in addition to construction, um, was visiting a few orphanages, a couple schools. Um, we had a chance to visit a couple churches um, and just wanted to be a blessing wherever it was that we went. It was neat because uh, part of our group of students were nursing students, so they went and did medical missions um, by taking care of folks and doing health checks in various places. Some of our students want to be teachers when they graduate from college, and so they 
put together like a VBS style curriculum and rotated at various orphanages and schools and blessed the kids there with biblical stories and lessons. And uh, so we just had a wonderful time. I wish it were longer, um, and, uh, but we're, so, we're glad to be back home, um, but wanted to share just the wonderful news of the way God is at work, um, utilizing God's people, and uh, it's a blessing to be part of that ministry. Amen. Uh, it makes me think of our missions ministry here at, at MEFC. We have a very strong missions department. Um, we are blessed that the Cortez family, Primo and Jackie, are leading that, uh, that mission, ministry for us. Um, and we are a, a very generous church. So I want to encourage you, um, even as we uh, get into the Word of God today and talk about Romans chapter 6, uh, there, are, there are implications of these verses that from, a, from an American Christian standpoint, we often tend to start focusing on individual sin, individual salvation, um, but we have to continue to be reminded that God calls us to be a part of his redemptive work. It's not just a matter of am I in or am I out? Am I saved or am I lost? That's, that's a matter of coordinates, uh, but God calls us less to, uh, to identify where our coordinates are as he calls us into a journey with him. Amen. Uh, which means we, we're not just, am I in or am I out? Uh, that, that's kind of primitive, prima, that's, that's, that's very uh, young stage Christianity. Uh, the next stage of our spiritual maturity and development is, am I part of God's team? Does that make sense? That's a very different kind of question. Am I in or am I out? Uh, oftentimes causes us to wonder, you know, am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? And yes, those questions are real. And yes, there is a heaven. And yes, there is a hell. But there's more to the conversation than just whether or not I'm going to heaven or I'm going to hell, right? The better question is, how am I living in such a way so that others can experience heaven while I'm on earth? Isn't that what Jesus said? Let your will be done, where? On where? Earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is prayer, when he taught us to pray, when he taught his disciples to pray, isn't just, am I going to heaven or not? It's, Lord, help me to live my life in such a way to where heaven comes to earth. And that can happen through a conversation. That can happen through a prayer. That can happen through sharing the word of God. That can happen through a sandwich. That can happen through a jacket. That can happen uh, through so many different ways to where we are obedient and we respond to this invitation so that we're not just concerned with am I in or am I out, but how am I living in such a way so that others can begin to experience heaven even right here where we are. Amen? Amen. And that, that's our call, and that's what I want to talk about today. We're looking at Romans chapter 6. Uh, the, the verse in this section of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning that is probably most famous that you're familiar with comes at the last verse of this section. We're looking at chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. Chapter 6 of Romans, verses 15 through 23. And I'll read the last verse first, and then we'll go jump back to the front. And uh, play around a little bit with what Paul is talking about in this letter to the church in Rome. The last verse in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. One more time. For the wages of sin is but the gift of God is in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? So this is the, the kind of last verse of this section of, of Romans 6 that we're looking at today. 
So let me back it up a little bit. Some of you have been tracking along the Romans series. I know we had a, a brief hiatus, and, and we're back on uh, this Romans uh, um, uh, series. But if you're brand new, you're here with us for the first time, or maybe you came last week, or you weren't here last week, but you were here the week before, let me give you a quick little recap as to what's taking place in this letter to the Romans. What is Paul teaching them? How is he talking about what God has done? Who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? All of these things are being answered in the book of Romans, okay? Um, It was funny, I was talking to somebody, a student actually, on our trip, and this student doesn't come from a Christian home. In fact, his family's ethnically Jewish, semi-religious, but not really. Um, But because of his decision to follow Jesus, his mom was texting him last week saying, I want to start reading the Bible. So she went all the way back and started reading in Genesis, and then she texted him, I'm getting lost in the book of Genesis. (laughs) So I encouraged him, I said, Charlie... Maybe uh, ask your mom to start in, like, the book of John or Mark or Romans, and then we'll work our way back to Genesis, <laughs> right? Um, but um, so Romans, what is it talking about? Romans chapter 1 through 3. I'm going to give you the shortest summar- summarization of Romans chapter 1 through 3. Are you ready? Yeah. We're all messed up. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> if you like cliff notes, there you go. Romans chapter 1 through 3, we're all messed up. Raise your hand if you're messed up. Raise your hand. Okay. The Bible says all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And then chapter 2 says, and if you don't think you, you are, that means you're prideful, which means you've fallen short of the glory of God. Right? And then it gets to chapter 3 where it says, even on our best day, it's like stinky trash. So Romans chapter 1 through 3 is, we're all messed up. Right? Turn to your neighbor and say, you're all messed up. Okay. Don't say it like that, though. I mean, you, you don't have to put that kind of anger in it. Like, Okay, so now the other person, tell, tell it back to the person who just told you you're messed up. Tell them you're messed up, too. Okay, so then we get to Romans chapter 4. Is it okay if we have fun with, with the scripture this morning? All right. I mean, these are important themes, so don't mistake the humor for lack of seriousness. But, you know, it's okay for us to recognize humbly and uh, honestly, that we're messed up, right? I think too often in churches, people walk around forgetting the fact that they were all broke down, right? And if you look at them, they look like they never sinned before, right? The way they dress, the way they talk, and you're like, man, you know where you come from. You know what God saved you from? Don't be trying to walk around acting like you're better than anybody. Nobody is better than anybody. We are all broken at the foot of the cross, right? So Romans 4 starts to get to more solutions orientation. Chapter 1 through 3, if you stop there, you're going to be real disappointed, man. You're going to be real discouraged because it's just like, man, all of us are messed up? Yeah. How messed up? Real messed up, right? So chapter 4 starts to talk about salvation. It starts to talk about the answer, the solution. But what Paul talks about in chapter 4 is he says, by the way, if you're looking for a solution to this problem called sin, you're not going to win and you're not going to work your way out of this problem called sin by earning your way into salvation by trying to be good. Because like he said in chapter 3, even on our best day, we still fall short. So then he starts talking about Abraham. And the reason why Abraham comes into play is because Abraham was declared righteous by virtue of the fact that he trusted God. So it was his faith in God that 
declared him righteous. It wasn't the works of the law. It wasn't all the things that he was able to perform and show to God and say, look how good I've been. Now can I have salvation, right? And God looks down and says, no matter how good you've been or try to be, you'll still fall short. Therefore, the beginning of this journey for Abraham was the fact that he said yes when God said go. So he believed God and his faith was credited to him as righteousness, right? So, where, where, where's that taking us? Romans chapter 4 is, is, is picking up off this 1 through 3. We're broke down and messed up. Chapter 4 says, and the way to get reconnected with God is by trusting God. Amen. Is by trusting God, right? Um, and, and then chapter 5 starts to talk to us a little bit about the grace of God. Somebody say grace. grace. God's grace is amazing. That's why we have that song called Amazing Grace. There's no grace like the grace of God. And, and the beautiful thing that Paul explains in chapter 5 is he says, let me talk to you about two people, Paul says. First, I'm going to talk to you about this guy named Adam, okay? And when Adam and Eve made a mistake and they allowed sin to enter into the world through their disobedience, God said do this, they did that, right? God said do that, they did this. And so because of their disobedience to God, sin entered the world. But Paul says if sin entered the world and has corrupted, all of us have this sin nature through one man. Paul says, how much more then has salvation entered the world through the better man who is Jesus? So Paul says, what Adam did has messed all of us up, but what Jesus has done has given all of us hope. Right? And he's making this connecting point. So the... the, the, the um, the pervasiveness of sin, the effects of sin are huge and, and impact every single one of us to the point where we are born with this sin nature that often manifests itself in its earliest stage as greed and selfishness. If you don't believe me, go in the nursery right now and just observe the two-year-olds. They don't want to share their toys. And if there's 10 toys, they want all 10, even if there's 10 other kids in the classroom, right? Uh, because there's this thing in us that when we're born, immediately, we want, we want, right? That's probably one of the, the, the our, our kids' first words are like want and no, you know what I mean? Like, mine, 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 and I want and no. Because we have this sin thing in us, right? But Paul's saying in chapter 5, even though sin entered the world and has had this detrimental impact on all of us, what has the cross done? Paul's saying the cross has power to not just one-to-one balance out the effects of sin, but the, the power of the cross far outweighs and outruns the power of sin. Right? What Jesus has done. And so that, that leads us then into some, uh, so, some things that we need to think about. And these are some things that the church in Rome were thinking about as well. So Paul wanted to provide some correction and some teaching to help them understand what was taking place here. Let me remind us of, a, of three instrumental scriptures that tie into what we're talking about today that come from other letters that Paul wrote. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be called the righteousness of God. So in other words, our righteousness doesn't come through what we've done, but it comes because Jesus has died for our sins. He's taken our sin onto the cross, uh, onto himself, right? He who knew no sin became sin, 
so that we might be called the righteousness of God. So, so that's one thing. The second thing is this. John 8, 36 says this. So if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ. So we have these, uh, these scriptures that are, that are foundational truth for us to be reminded that we've been set free, that we are free indeed, that we have become the righteousness of God through Jesus, and that in Christ we are a brand new creation. Amen? Amen? So here we are then in chapter 6, uh, verses 15. So let's go ahead and start to look at chapter 6, verse 15, to see what Paul is teaching the church in Rome in this section of his letter. He says in verse 15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin... Somebody say, used to be. You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free. Somebody say, set free. From sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So Paul's saying, we're no longer slaves to sin. But they were starting to get confused because in chapter 5, he was telling them how great God's grace is, right? And he was saying God's grace is so great that anybody has access to this salvation. And so certain people started to live in such a way that they would say, man, God's grace is so big. I bet you I could do whatever I want and he's still going to forgive me and everything's going to be all good, right? Man, his grace is so good and so big and, and his forgiveness is always available for us. So therefore... I don't have to do anything other than just say a prayer one time in my life, and as long as I meant it, thank you, in all sincerity, then I never have to worry about trying to live my life in a way that pleases God, since my life can not really please God anyway, so I'm just going to do whatever I want and somehow believe that what Jesus has done on the cross is enough to cover all that. And then you had folks who started out as Christians, but then little by little faded out into living lives like they used to live before they met Christ. So Paul's like, we got to correct some of this. We got to bring some of this stuff in because that lifestyle is stemming from bad theology. That practice is coming from bad theory. That, that application is coming from a bad foundational understanding of what Jesus has done and what that means for how we ought to live. Right? And so they got hung up on this amazing grace thing that it then caused them to fall away from doing the best they can to align their lives with the purposes and the will of God. So Paul's saying here, no, no, no. Jesus has done something amazing for us that gives all of us access to salvation, but that doesn't mean that we should or could go and live however we want because whatever we continually say yes to, that is what we serve. Let me say it one more time. Whatever we continually say yes to, that is what we serve. So Paul is saying, if you keep saying yes to sin, then you're still a slave to sin, even though Jesus has freed you from that. Right? He's broken those chains. He's allowed us to no longer live as slaves 
to sin. We are now slaves to righteousness. But when we continue to say yes to something, then what we're saying is that owns us. But I want you to know that you have been bought with the price and you are not owned by anyone other than Jesus who is our Lord. Amen? So let me, let, me, let me share with you a little illustration, and this might help us understand what's happening here in chapters 5 and 6. So uh, has anybody heard of the word recidivism? Recidivism is a word that simply means uh, the likelihood that someone who's been released from prison will return to prison in a short period of time. In fact, it's defined like this in, in the Justice website. It says, a person's relapse into criminal behavior often after the person receives sanctions or undergoes intervention for a previous crime. It is measured by criminal acts that result in rearrest, reconviction, or return to prison during a three-year period following release. In fact, let me share a statistic with you. 76% of prisoners in the U.S. are rearrested within a five-year period. Recidivism. 76% of prisoners in the U.S. By the way, in the world, we have the highest recidivism rate. In the world. Right? We pat ourselves on the back for all the good things that we do. We think we're best. We fly our flag proudly. And yet we have a lot of challenges that we need to continue to address. 76% is crazy. Meaning... Uh, and again, I'm not, I'm not sharing this to point blame on the individual who, you know, ended up going back into jail. I'm not sharing this to point blame at our justice system. I'm simply pointing out facts this morning. And the facts are this. Those who've been released have a 76% chance of going back in for something within a five-year period. And why do I bring that up as we're talking about Romans? Because I believe it helps us explain the message of the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. When Jesus died on the cross, when his hands were nailed into the wood and his feet were nailed in and he put a crown of thorns and it was on his head and he took your sin and my sin, even though he didn't deserve it. He was perfect in any, every way, did not deserve punishment for, anybody, for his sin or anybody's sin and yet willingly decided like a sheep led to slaughter to take our sin upon himself to be crucified on a cross humiliated in front of the public. They made fun of him. They put a, a signboard above his head that said, Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, by the Romans so that the Romans could show all the Jews, look it, this is your king, and look what we're doing to him. So nobody try to do anything while the Romans are here because we'll put you in your place. They were making fun of him. And he took our sin on himself, right? And because of that, the blood that Jesus shed has power to forgive any and every lost sinner. I want everybody to say those two words, any and every. There's this really bad doctrine that I disagree with that exists in many churches that I'm sure you're familiar with that says that what Jesus did on the cross, there's something called limited atonement. And what limited atonement means is that Jesus only died on the cross for a certain number of people. And there are different churches that preach that doctrine, right? And, and so they, and, and in my mind, the way that I understand that doctrine, which I disagree with, is that I believe the blood of Jesus has power to save any and everyone. His blood, it doesn't run out. 
um, it, it, it it's not so in, it's invaluable or, 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 or lacking of worth that it could only count for a certain number of lives that decide to turn their heart toward Jesus. No, what Jesus did on the cross, like Paul is saying in chapter 5, if what Adam did affected everybody, then what Jesus did has implications for everybody as well. Right? But here's the thing, here's the illustration and analogy and the reason why I brought up the recidivism rate is because even though you and I have been slaves, prisoners to sin, even though we uh, have been shackled by this, this brokenness, this greed, this hatred, this anger, this, this uh, pleasure-seeking mentality, this uh, bad habits over and over again causing us to stay in prison, even though we have been shackled by all these things that sin brings, jealousy and comparison and envy and, and, and lust and all these different things that cause us to be prisoners, right? Jesus came, he took out a key from his back pocket, he, he stuck it into the door where the, where, the, where the prison bars were, he turned it to the right, the door opened wide up, and he says, come on, let's go, you don't got to stay here anymore. But the thing about it is, a few people walk out. A few people walk out and they say, thank you, Jesus. They give him a high five, they give him a knuckle, they give him an elbow, they give him a hug, right? They say, you're the man, appreciate you. You got my back, right? They walk out, and within five years, they go back into that same prison cell. Recidivism. Or others never even walked out. They're like, you know, I kind of like it in here. They bring me food through these bars. And I got, a, I got a restroom right over here whenever I need it in the bed. And first it wasn't comfortable, but now it's starting to get comfortable. You know what? Thanks, but no thanks, Jesus. You're the man, but I'm cool right here where I'm at. I like my sin. I like, I like my addiction. I, I like my, my attitude. I, I like my selfishness and egocentrism. I'm good right here. I don't need whatever's out there. Thank you for coming and offering, but I'm okay right where I'm at. You see, the thing about it is what Jesus did on the cross was he broke down every prison door that exists for anyone who would so choose to leave that cell and to follow Jesus as Lord. He has made it available for any and everyone who would so choose to follow Jesus. Amen. It's not like what he did on the cross. Oh, man, you know, I could only bust out 10 of these folks. That's all I got in my bail account. Jesus' bail account... They can't even fit the numbers on the screen when he pulled it up to see how much he could spend. It's, 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 it's never ending. Right? It's everlasting. And so it, what he did on the cross is not limited, so I'm not a fan of limited atonement. Does that make sense? Okay, let me use another analogy or illustration that could help us understand. Okay? Imagine you had some debt. Okay, some of you are like, Pastor Cobra, I don't got to imagine that. <laughs> I already know. <laughs> okay, imagine you had some debt, right? And you're making monthly payments and you're trying to pay it off. You pay it in on time, right? But then all of a sudden, somebody came and said, I'm going to take care of this person's debt in full. And I'm going to pay the prepayment penalty to get them out now. And all of a sudden, your debt was wiped clean. In the database, it says zero, right? And there was even a notice in the mail that came, but you never checked your mail, so you didn't see the notice. 
You thought it was junk mail, but it was actually real mail. And it said zero balance, but you kept paying a monthly payment for the next 10 years of your life. Only to realize 10 years later that it was already paid off. That's what it's like to continue living in sin when we've been given freedom in Christ to no longer be slaves to sin, but now to be a slave of Jesus Christ. We keep making the monthly payments to sin when it was already a zero balance. Does that make sense? Okay, so as I read chapter 5 and chapter 6, these two illustrations help me to understand. Now, here's another fallacy. Everybody know what a fallacy means? It means something that's wrong. Another fallacy, theologically, that some people believe and some churches believe is the doctrine of universalism. Everybody say universalism. So they take chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Romans, and they interpret it to mean if sin entered the world through Adam and it affected all of us, then when Jesus died on the cross, now all of us have salvation in Christ, regardless of what we do, that we could uh, essentially never pay attention to that, never say a sinner's prayer, never aim to live our lives in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Just simply by virtue of what Jesus did, it makes us saved. And so universalists believe that everyone is saved no matter what. That make sense? So here's why I don't believe in universalism is because if I use the prison analogy one more time, um, yes, I do believe that Jesus has every key for every prison cell. And yes, he's willing to open them up and bring us out. But no, not everyone is willing to follow Jesus out of that prison cell. So that's why I disagree with universalism. Now, what I agree with is that Jesus, what he did on the cross, has power to save any and everybody. Right? But not any and everybody is going to recognize their brokenness, turn from their sin, let go of a life of being a slave to sin, and begin to be a slave to Jesus. Does that make sense? So you got limited atonement on one side, wrong. You got universalism on the other side, wrong. And in between is recognizing Jesus has power to save anybody and everyone. Okay, as long as we say yes to him. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I can't do it on my own. I don't want to do it on my own. I've tasted and I've seen that it's terrible, but you've come into my life and allowed me to see that there's something better, that I can have pure joy, that I can have hope in my life, that I can have peace that surpasses understanding, that I can live in a way that's aligned with my created purpose, that I can have relationship with my God, that I can begin to live a life that no longer looks like the, the, the putrid death of my former self, but now I can live my life in such a way that brings light and hope and, and that, that brings glory to your name. As long as I say no to that and die to that and say yes to you and follow you, I believe that you have given me a new life. So he says in, in chapter six, so don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So he's trying to allow them to understand that there's an invitation here. 
There's an invitation, right? And the invitation comes from the fact that what Jesus has done is already enough. And then the invitation is, are we going to say yes to that? Or are we going to go back into the same cycle of what we were used to before we met Jesus? So I want to skip down to verses 20 and 21. It says this, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time, at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Let's pause right there. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Remember earlier, I talked about that rate, the 76% of those who are released end up going back. And unfortunately, uh, as much as we'd like to think that that's just uh, a, a description of what takes place in our penal system, it also applies to our spiritual lives. Let me, let me uh, walk through what I might call a cycle of redemption. A cycle of redemption. It goes something like this, and it might sound familiar. This might actually be a framework for your testimony. We become aware of our sin, whether it's through life circumstances that take us to rock bottom or through the preaching of the gospel and our sin is revealed. Either way, we become aware there's something that needs to change. Then we recognize our need for salvation and we turn to Jesus. We believe that he is our salvation. We believe that what he did on the cross is sufficient for us to receive salvation. And then once we say yes, we experience deep joy and deep peace, great love. Nothing compares to it. And through discipleship, we learn to trust God and develop Christian habits that lead to holiness, righteousness, and salvation. But over time, we get comfortable and we begin to forget what God has done for us. We're tempted to go back to the old pleasures and lifestyle that we pursued before we knew Christ. So Paul asked the question, what benefit did you reap? I like to ask it another way. Is it worth it? As we're thinking about our decisions and our life choices and, and we're thinking about going left when we know we should go right or we're thinking about going right when we should be going straight and when we're making all these different decisions and weighing them out, a good question to ask is, is it worth it? Is this experience worth it is this conversation worth it is this is this thing that I'm contemplating worth it or can I remember the benefit that I reap when I live my life in that way and the brokenness that I experienced and the lostness that I that I uh that I had in my heart do I want to go back to that or do I want to remember the joy of salvation do I want to remember the, the way in which the Lord began to, to renew relationships that I had with others when he restored my heart because they saw I was no longer the same person and now people that I hadn't talked to in years want to talk with me because Jesus lives in me. Do I want to remember uh, uh, all those different things or do I want to go back to the life that I used to live? All right, and, and that happens when we begin to forget all that God has brought us from. Which is why I encourage you, never forget where you were and what it was like 
When you experience Jesus, come and say, I got you. You don't have to live like that anymore. You don't got to be by yourself anymore. You don't have to fight those battles by yourself anymore. I'm fighting with you. I'm making you into a new creation. You are free indeed. Don't believe any of the lies of the enemy. You've already been redeemed. What I've done for you is enough. And I'm with you no matter where you go. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. If you slip, I'll catch you. If you fall, I'll pick you up. But don't kick Jesus off of your journey. Don't tell him I got this from here, which is what so many of us do. Thank you, Lord, for bringing me to this point. I'm so glad that I'm right here, but I got it from here on out. And Jesus, look at you just with that, that, that look. You know what look I'm talking about. Right? That look when, when, when you want to say something, but you don't say it, but you do say it with your face. Jesus looks at you like, you really want to do that? You want to give me the boot now? Now that I got you out of that fire and that storm and, and all that that you went through, now that the weather's kind of nice, you think you got this on your own, huh? Yeah, yeah, I don't need to go to church as much anymore. That was good for that one time in my life when I was really at that one point, but, and God got me right, and now I'm cool. I can do whatever I want on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. I'll go back to work, and as long as I live a good life and try not to be as bad as I used to be, me and God will be cool. And what I would say is that is a recipe for disaster, Amen. deeper lostness. So don't do it. Paul's saying in Romans chapter 6, whatever you say yes to over and over again, that is what you are a slave to. Amen. So if it's Jesus, guess what? Welcome to the club. We all follow him as our Lord. Amen. Amen. It connects. I was talking to my dad before the, before the, uh, the, during the service earlier today, and we were reflecting on the fact that in chapter 1, Paul introduces himself to the church in Rome, and he doesn't say, hey guys, my name is Paul, I'm an apostle. He doesn't say, hey guys, my name is Paul, I'm the chief pastor and overseer of all these churches. He doesn't say, hey, uh, uh, my name is Paul, right? He says, doulos tu Christu, in Greek means slave of Jesus Christ. Woo! So jump fast forward all the way to chapter 6. What he's saying here is there's a reason why I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. Because if I'm not a slave to him, I'm going to become a slave to something else. I'm going to become a slave to sin. I'm going to become a slave to comparison. I'm going to become a slave to success and, and, and material uh, uh, wealth. I'm going to become a slave to uh, my own image and perception. I'm going to become a slave to, uh, to whatever values are being shoved in front of my face through our culture that says this is what's most important. If, if we don't recognize that we need to demonstrate uh, a complete surrender to Jesus and say, Lord, you're in charge. See, that's a different way of thinking about our faith. Let me see what time we got. Okay. It's a, def a different way of, of, of thinking about our faith. You see, a lot of churches will teach this kind of faith. If you believe in God, your life is going to be better. And what I would say is that is an incomplete gospel. Because there were those who God called, like Stephen, for instance, in the book of Acts, to come alongside the disciples and serve, and saying yes to Jesus meant he got killed because of his desire to share the gospel when people didn't want to hear it. So sometimes saying yes to Jesus doesn't give us a better life. It will lead to eternal life, but sometimes it leads to a hard life. 
Why? Because saying yes to Jesus means we're part of his redemption team, which isn't always easy. So this idea that saying yes to Jesus gives us a better life is not the full gospel. Is it the best life? Absolutely. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like saying, Lord, I surrender to all this shallow stuff, and now I want to live in ways that are connected to eternity. The same spirit that hovered over the waters of the deep in Genesis 1, the same one that's going to bring all things to himself at the end of Revelation is the same spirit that's alive in me. What a way to live. Wake up on a Monday morning and all of a sudden I realize that I'm connected to the one who said, let there be. There's nothing better. There's no better life than that. But doesn't mean I'm always going to be successful and healthy. There's no all kinds of guarantees there. The only guarantee is this. If you say yes to Jesus, your sins are forgiven, your eternity is secure, and you're invited to a journey that may or may not be comfortable, but it is going to be connected to the heart of God. If you want to come, come. If you don't want, don't come. Right? I love that Jesus never begged people to follow him. He, oh, come on, man. You don't want to come? Come on. Just come. Come tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. Jesus is like, some of you guys probably should leave right now. There'll be less of you to feed later on when this little boy comes and brings some bread and some fish. Less of you. (laughs) Jesus never begged people to follow him. But he does give every single person in here an invitation. Nobody's left out. Nobody's left out. Anyone and everyone. Right? Has an invitation. Right? So let's finish. Verses 22 and 23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. Somebody say holiness. Holiness. The benefit you reap leads to Holiness. So, so now that we have said yes to God and we no longer say yes to sin, what he does is it's this process called sanctification, which is the process of being made holy, right? Being made holy. That doesn't mean we act like we're holier than others, okay? Uh, but what it does mean is that we enter into a process of being conformed into the likeness of Jesus, That means that how we talk sounds more like Jesus. How we act sounds more like Jesus. How we love looks more like Jesus. How we think is transformed by Jesus. What we do are the things that Jesus did, right? And so this process of holiness is is being conformed into the image of Christ. It's a wonderful process. It's hard because our flesh keeps popping up, like wanting to do its own thing. Like, can I take a little bit of this from Jesus, but then keep a little bit of this from me, and then we can make a hybrid? Right? Like a cyborg Christian? Like, your hands look like Jesus, but your mind looks like Satan, and no, man, the whole, somebody say the whole thing. We got to bring every single bit of it. It's all yours, Lord. Like, Jesus doesn't save half of us. Right? He doesn't want to just sanctify a quarter of us. He don't just want to save your Sundays. Lord, I'm going to give you my, my one, one out of seven. You got it. The other six are me. Maybe one of them I'll give you like two hours on a Wednesday night. But other than that, let's make a deal. 
Jesus, he don't want half of us. Right? But now that you have been set, what? From sin. You have and have become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. What an invitation that we have. An invitation to walk out. You don't got to stay in that prison cell any longer. Jesus has the key and he already opened the door. What are you going to do? You comfy in that cell? Jesus already paid the debt. You're going to keep making the monthly payment? They don't, even have, they don't even have you on file no more. They're trying to figure out why does this person keep sending us $400 a month? Don't they know that they don't even have a file with us anymore? We looked up and down. They even went into the cloud, and they erased it from the cloud. Got no record of this person in our system, and yet they keep making $400 payments every month. You don't got to make payments to sin anymore because the wages are, are death. What benefit did you reap, right? Instead, we've been bought with a price. We belong to Jesus, so then we live like it. Our decisions reflect it. Our yeses reflect it. Our commitments reflect it. Right? Um, and that's why uh, maintaining a commitment to the body of Christ is so significant because the enemy's greatest attack on any of us who are entering into this process is to get, cause us to start to doubt what Jesus did when we made that decision to follow him. And we start to create an alternative story in our mind. Oh, I was just emotionally caught up in that moment during that one time because I just lost somebody close to me and all kinds of bad things were happening. So I made an irrational decision and got gung-ho for Jesus and started reading this thing called the Bible and worshiping. And it was great while it lasted, but now that I got through that phase, that's not really for me anymore. Now I'm just going to focus on being a better person and try to avoid that pitfall that I fell in. Well, guess what? The pitfall that you fell in was a result of one sin decision after another. And if we don't have Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, if we don't have Jesus as the one that we say yes to, then it's only a matter of time before we say yes to something else. And it starts with small things that don't seem consequential. It's smart. It starts with insignificant yeses to things that aren't Jesus that gradually we look back and say, how did I get here? And then the embarrassment and shame and guilt comes in, and we start to wonder, do I really want to risk the embarrassment of going back to Jesus after all these years and what I did? And then Satan starts to use uh, shame and guilt to keep us further distant from God's grace. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus is calling you today. Amen. There's no one that's too lost.
There's no one too broken. There's no one too wounded. That's what I think Paul's trying to make the point here. He's trying to to give them multiple things at once. He's trying to say, it is unfathomable. We cannot comprehend the love of God and his grace that he poured out upon us. If you think sin is something, watch what grace can do. Right? He's trying to hold multiple ideas at once. Like, we cannot put a number on what Jesus has done for us at the cross. It's incalculable what he's done for us. And... It's also irresponsible to then live our lives in such a way that takes advantage of the incalculable grace that God has given us. So he says, it's available for you, and don't be saying yes to stupid stuff. Is that all right? You can edit that later, guys, in the back however you want to, right? Say yes to Jesus, because that yes is the best yes. Amen? Wherever you are right now in your life, some of you might be thinking, man, Pastor Koba, I don't know where to start, but I know I got to go somewhere because what we've been talking about today is hitting home. What I want to say is this, um, God loves you. Um, here's, here's what I also want to say. You might be thinking to yourself, man, he's so ashamed, of, he's, he's so disappointed in me because of my decision and the fact that I've fallen off. And I've got back on and I've fallen off and I've got back on. And you might be thinking to yourself that you're getting ready to get a, you're going to get chewed out by God when you finally come back to have that conversation. And if you're in that mode, I want to remind you of Luke chapter 15, when the son went away from his home, asked for the inheritance way too early, wasted it all, came back with a tail between his legs, waiting to get chewed out by his dad, asking him if he could just simply be a servant that lives in the backyard. He doesn't need to let him into his house. He doesn't need his old room. He doesn't need his closet back. He doesn't need any more things because he already asked his dad for everything that he should ever get from his dad for his entire life. And yet when he came home, his dad looked at him and before he could apologize, simply said to him, you're already forgiven. You're still my son. Get in the house. Give him the best robe. Put my sandals on his feet. Put my ring on his finger. The son that I thought was lost has come back home. I think Paul was doing the best he could to use theological words to explain what Jesus said in Luke 15. That's where it is. Are you worried? You worried that people are going to look at you weird? Don't worry about that. There's only one look that Jesus gives you, and it's a look of love. It's a look of grace. It's a look of mercy. It's a look of forgiveness. Right? It's beautiful because he gets to display the, uh, the wonderful, marvelous, glorious grace that our human brains and hearts cannot fully comprehend. So if you said yes to Jesus, keep saying yes. If you're tempted to say yes to something else, it's not a good yes. It's just say no. You could look at it and say, sorry, I belong to Jesus now. He already paid my debt. He already opened up the prison door for me. I ain't going back to that life. There ain't nothing there for me. Somebody say, there ain't nothing there for me. Amen? Last thing I'm going to say. I could be up here for a long time. I'm sorry. Um, Last thing I'm going to say is this. If you're wondering to yourself, some of you are here this morning, and maybe you're not 
really super tempted to go back to a lifestyle that is blatantly um, misaligned with the heart of God. But maybe you're just in a place where you kind of feel numb. You're like, you're talking about these words and grace and mercy and they kind of make sense to me, but to be completely honest, some of this other stuff sounds a little bit more appealing. My encouragement to you is if you're in that stage of your walk with Christ is um, remember when you make space in your heart and in your, and in your life to experience more of Jesus, he will not disappoint. Uh, the book of James says it this way, if you draw near unto the Lord, he will draw near unto you. So if you're like, Lord, I wanna be reminded of why a life with you is better than a life with anything else, then I wanna invite you and just simply say, carve out some time for worship personally. Carve out some time for prayer. Seek the Lord's face because when we seek him with all our heart, he is faithful, right? And will remind us deep down in our heart that there's nothing that can compare to his love. When we go through the motions and show up on a Sunday, show up here, do this, do that. Yeah, no wonder why something else is going to look more appealing because we haven't fully pressed in to who Jesus is and what it means to live with him in our heart every single minute of every single day. So my encouragement is simply this. Don't believe the lies of the enemy that something else is better. Instead, reprioritize your commitment to follow Jesus so that you could be reminded again and again and again, I'm thankful in my life that my relationship with the Lord, my love for God and, and my recognition of his love for me isn't connected to one moment I had way back when. It's like every single day. It's like every time I gather in this place and worship team sings one line of a song and I'm just reminded in that moment, yes, Lord, I'm yours. Right? And I love you. Or maybe it's just opening up the word of God and coming across a, a passage that just reminds you that, of God's love for you and his presence and the fact that he's always with you. And that's a moment right there. That's the beautiful thing of the way the Holy Spirit works in us, right? As I think about our relationship with the Lord, I think about my relationship with my wife. We've been married for 15 years and we talk every single day. How can I expect to have a thriving relationship with God when I rely upon one conversation we had 10 years ago? One, one moment, one spiritual moment, one experience. No, no, no. It's a daily invitation to commune and be in the presence of God. To remind God who he is to you and to be reminded who you are to him. Every single day, right? And as we do that, we cultivate within us a lifestyle that demonstrates over and over again why this is worth it. When we ask that question, is it worth it? This is worth it. Jesus is worth it. A life of discipleship is worth it. Being part of God's team is worth it. Everything else, it isn't worth it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are here. We thank you for your word, for the, uh, the teaching of Paul to help us make sense of the cross and the gift of eternal life and also the wages of sin and brokenness and 
the danger of saying yes to sin over and over again, even after we've said yes to Jesus. May our yes be yes and our no be no. And would our yes be connected to you every single day? You are worth it. And so we want to follow you and serve you with our lives. Forgive us, Lord, when we've said yes yesterday and maybe today and no tomorrow. Bring us back on track with you uh, that we might live for you. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church.